Uh, hey guys, I am Brandon, if we haven't met, and I'm going to be reading our scripture for the evening. Let's pull that down. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about, the, about all these things that happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels, who said that he was still alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Brandon. Hey, guys, how we doing? So good to see y'all. Hope you're doing well. Hoping to, having a great week, chilly week, but here we are. It's warm inside, and we filled you with spaghetti and meatballs, so you should be good, right? Well, um, well, we are in week two of a series we're calling A Missional Life. You've already heard a little bit about that tonight. Um, and we're going to continue in this series tonight talking about the missional God. And so if you have a Bible just open that thing anywhere, because we're going to be covering the entire Bible tonight. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm halfway kidding, halfway serious, and you'll kind of see that in a minute. Um, but if you do want to have that passage open um, in uh, Luke 24, we just heard from, thank you, Brandon, you can have that there. But we'll be referencing multiple things in Scripture. Because tonight we are looking at, like Lauren said, the narrative, the story of uh, the Bible. Looking forward to this. I think it's going to be very helpful for us. Um, But if you were not with us last week, even if you were, just a refresher, last week we kicked off this series talking about a missional life, kind of defining some terms uh, in terms of what does it mean to live a missional life. And one way we define that is living a missional life is to invite people to be a part of the universal reign of God in Christ. That's a very 30,000 foot, big picture, cosmic idea we'll unpack more tonight. But kind of on the ground, we unpack that as really to live on mission, to live a missional life is to really live as an everyday missionary wherever you are. That you would look at your world, uh, your context in the same way that uh, a missionary in another country would. That you seek to be intentional, build relationships, to share the gospel, to live missionally in that way. And we really talked through three things last week. We talked about the struggle of being a Christian, living on mission in 2020 
journey and all the things around us, within us, that can hinder us in that mission. Uh, we talked about our identity in Christ and that we're secure, that we're sent by him. And also we talked about um, the urgency of living on mission, the reality of hell, the fact that there is no plan B, um, all these things that are really um, important to us as we center ourselves on living on mission. And that was last week. Uh, but tonight we're going to kind of continue in this series, but I thought it was really important as we were breaking this down to think, you know, as we're considering what it means to live a missional life, uh, we got to start with God himself and how God himself is the ultimate missionary in the way that he's uh, come to us. You know, if, to be missional is really to pursue people, right? It's to intentionally pursue people, you know, and to invite them to respond to what God has done, to the gospel. And that's why it's called mission, right? We, we, we use the word mission all the time now in the church. It's like a catchphrase. But that word mission means like you have an objective, right? You ha- you're not just kind of, you know, throwing it out there to the wind, hoping something catches or whatever. Like you have an intentional focus. And so really when we talk about mission and the mission of God, we're talking about God being intentional to pursue us, God having a purpose in our life and in the world. And we don't come up with our own mission on our own, but that we come up with the mission that, sorry, we receive our mission from God. So in order to consider what it means to live on mission, to have a missional life, we got to start with uh, the mission of God. So that's where we're going to be tonight. We're going to consider how God has pursued us looking at the story of the Bible, how he's pursued us, and how that story should then lead us to pursue other people in God's mission. And that's why we read from Luke 24. Um, I love that story. You know, where the, the disciples, some of the disciples, we don't know who they were, uh, not necessarily one of the 12 disciples, just some of Jesus' followers after his resurrection. They're walking down a road to Emmaus, this guy that they don't know, although it's really Jesus, he's kind of uh, veiled himself to them. He comes up and they're talking about, you know, Christ and his death and that they haven't heard about the resurrection yet and they're disappointed, their hopes are kind of crushed. And Jesus appears to them and Jesus leads them in what has to be probably the best Bible study you'll ever, you know, would have been a part of. You know, you're walking down the road and Jesus teaches Bible study. He teaches Sunday school to these guys. He, and he takes all the Bible and like all the Old Testament and expands to them and shows how he's the, the center of the story. How all the things in the Old Testament pointed to himself. And I love that because it shows us really that the Bible, number one, is a story, but it's a story that has a centerpiece in Christ. That really, if you know the Jesus Storybook Bible, that great kid's book, um, it really says that every story whispers his name. Every story in the Bible whispers the name of Christ. And then I love their response, they say at the end. Uh, my old youth ministry back in, um, back in the day in church, we were heartburn ministries because of these uh, <laughs> this, uh, verses. We will not be heartburn ministries here. It's okay. But it was a cool thing in the 90s to have like a a hip name for your ministry, you know, but we were heartburn ministries and it was because of this and, and the way that they respond. And I love it that they, these disciples, they're ignited, they're, their hearts burn. They have passion ignited by the way that Jesus kind of shows them the big picture and really how Christ is the center of the story and how God has been not just kind of up to randomness throughout history, but he's been intentionally moving history in a direction that Christ is now the fulfillment of, and they get to be a part of that. And so really that's kind of my goal for us tonight is that we're looking at a couple of things. We're going to consider our story and what does your story look like. We're going, to, we're going to look at the big picture story of what God's doing in the world. Um, and we're going to receive God's invitation to place our story within his story. And my hope is that we'll have the same response as those disciples. That we'll be ignited with a passion, a heartburn, if you will, um, for the name and renown of Christ in the world and to join in God in his mission in the world. Okay, so that's our goal. So we'll do that in three steps. So let's first consider your story tonight. All right. Um, and by the way, BCM people, this is not ask me my story night. It's a whole different thing. We'll talk about it later, different kind of story. All right. But think about stories with me for a second. Um, we all love good stories, right? Remember last week when I started off with that story of Larry Walters and the, um, 
lawn chair balloon thing. It's so funny when you speak in front of people, if you start telling a story, eyes just kind of go up. You know, people kind of pay attention because we love stories. We're really grab, we're like attracted to stories. We gravitate toward them. That's why so much of our media and entertainment involves, you know, story and narrative, even if it's like not necessary, like random apps on your phone that like, you know, could just do a task or like be a random game. They'll like weave a story in there for some reason. It's not really necessary. Candy Crush has some narrative for some reason, you know. Like we just love having a narrative and a story kind of underneath everything because stories entertain us, but also even they empower us. Like stories do a lot more to entertain than they empower. And aside from the fictional stories that we have, our culture is actually full of competing stories that claim to be true about the world and the way it is. I love the way that... uh, I'm going to butcher her name, but I think it's Bobette Buster, which is quite a name. Um, But she is a TED Talk person. She's a consultant for a lot of Hollywood. Um, She's a story writing consultant for Hollywood. Does a lot of things with big movies. She said this. She said, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. I love that because it's so true about our culture. I don't think she's a Christian. Um, but she's so right in our culture that really narrative and story and meaning is really the currency of our, of our culture. And whoever tells the best story wins. And so these true stories that we think about in our life and that we look at in culture, where they tell us a couple of things. They're going to tell us who we are, why we're here, where we came from, what's our mission in life, and what direction is the world headed in. And these stories matter a lot. And the story that we're living in our own lives is going to inevitably influence the way that we live our life and the way, the way that we live in the world. Because we all have a story that we're living out. You know, many of us, you know, you have an idea of the way you want your life to play out. Um, and you're making choices that kind of further that story. Um, in psychology, they have a, a name for that. It's called social scripts. I don't know if you've taken psychology and learned much about that. But that's a thing. That really, a social script is kind of like a playbook that you kind of inherit, whether you, know, you acknowledge it or know it or not, is a playbook that you receive, and you begin to kind of run these plays in life based on the script that you think fits your life best, maybe the script that you just feel like you've inherited that's best for you. And really, we can have all kinds of different scripts and playbooks that we run in life, stories that we live into. You know, maybe your story is like the achievement story, where the goal of your story is to be successful. And so everything around you, all the choices you make are moving toward getting, getting the grade, getting the degree, and achieving that career that you really dream of. That, that's your story. Maybe your story is the approval story. You know, that your goal is to receive the approval of your parents or friends. And so you choose the right path in life to receive that approval. You know, and to look, you know, maybe you're Enneagram type 3 like me. And you really want to look like you're performing well and achieving in life. You know, I understand that. Maybe your uh, story is the romance story. You know, that your goal in life is not to be alone, but to find your soulmate. So, you know, all of your mental and emotional energy goes to finding the person you want to marry, you know, and live happily ever after with a white picket fence and two and a half kids and a dog and and maybe a cat, you know. Um, And none of those things are necessarily bad things on their own, right? Those are all uh, potentially good things. But when we make them the main storyline of our life, there's a lot of potential for that to fall apart and then leave us disappointed. So really, the first thing we want to do is to ask the question and look at our lives and say, what kind of story am I living into in my life? Maybe what script, what playbook am I running that I maybe not even acknowledging? What, what is my, you know, examine your heart. Consider the story that you're living out. And consider this, that in the midst of all of our little stories, there is one overarching big story that we're all invited into, and it's God's story. It's the story of God. It's the one true story that we were all created for. And it's only when we find our place and our story inside of God's story that any of our own stories make sense. 
that any of them make sense. And that's the only way we're going to find peace and purpose in life and stability when things fall apart, when things don't go the way we think they should in our story and in our script. And the good news of the gospel is that we're all invited into the big story, the, na- the narrative of God. But the question we've got to ask is, then what is that story? And what kind of story are we talking about? And that's where we're going to go tonight for the bulk of our time. It's that second point there. It's God's story. And I want us to do is this. I want us to look just at the big picture story of God, the big picture of the Bible, and kind of look how the big theme of this has always been and always will be God as the missional God, okay? Because the Bible is a big book. It's 66 chapters. It's thousands of pages. It's really, really long, you know, but really in all that, it's one continuous story, right? You know, some people sometimes wrongly view the Bible as like a rule book, or they wrongly view it as like a theology textbook, although we get great principles from the Bible, we get great theology from the Bible, but ultimately the Bible is not any of those things. The Bible is a story. It's a story centered on Christ, and it's a story that we're invited into, and this story can be summed up into the mission of God. Like if you want to kind of say the foundational principle and theme of the Bible really is God on mission to us. It's a mission, and I'll make my case with this. It's all summed up as a mission, Um, It's not one of the many themes, but it's the fundamental one. And that's because God himself is a missionary God. Because remember, mission means there's an objective, there's a purpose, there's an intentionality. And all throughout the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end, you know, from Genesis to maps, as some people would say, right? The theme and the focus is God as a missionary God, that he has a purpose in the world, and he's, he's working toward that end. And he's pursuing us. He's pursued us throughout all of history, and he continues to pursue us today. So when we talk about mission... We don't really do mission for God. You know, that's not really the way this works. But really, God is on mission himself. And we get to join in with God. We get to partner with God in his mission in the world. And that's the way the Bible would paint that story. And so I want us to think about the story of God really in four scenes. You may be familiar with this. You may not be. But four stories, four scenes of the entire Bible. It's these four. I gave you mine on your your note sheet. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Some people say new creation. Some people say consummation. There's lots of Asian words there, but I chose restoration. I think it's a good um, description. So let's, let's trace through these for just a moment. And really, I think we're, gonna, we're pr- pr- pretty much going to cover the entire picture of the Bible in just a few minutes. And so maybe this will be helpful for you. I know for a long time, uh, I didn't really get the big picture of the Bible. And I hope maybe for you tonight, this will be helpful as we start tracing this out. So let's think about that first one. Think about the beginning. Genesis, creation. Think about Genesis 1. How does the Bible begin? In the, in the beginning, God created, right? He created the heavens and the earth, and it goes on and on. But the, the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created. God is creator. And that seems really simple. Like, yeah, well, I get that, of course, you know. But it's really important because really God being creator and the way he creates in Genesis 1 tells us a lot about who he is. Because when the Old Testament was written, there were lots of other competing creation stories that were out there in culture at that time that told how the world came to be and they involved all kinds of crazy multiplicities of gods and insane ways the world happened out of violence and and sexual perversion and all kinds of stuff. But the thing about Genesis and the beautiful way that it uh, it paints a picture of creation is that in the biblical account of creation, we see a lot of things about God that really are in stark contrast to the other false gods of the day. The way that creation unfolds, we see that God is good He's the only God, he's the all-powerful God, he's holy, he's loving, and that he creates the world. And here's the thing, he creates it with purpose and with order, and he's involved with creation. 
He's not creation itself. This isn't pantheism. He's not distant from creation. It's not deism where he kind of sets it in motion like a clock and steps away. But God is, you know, involved with creation. He creates it, but he continues to sustain it. He can, continues to, to work in the world. And that's a really significant thing because many worldviews at that time and many worldviews today don't view God that way. And in creation, as God creates you know, all these things in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the crowning achievement of his creation is what? It's us. Right? It's, it's humanity. And so he creates Adam and Eve. They're made in the image of God to glorify God, to live in his presence. And we see that humanity was created to reflect God's character and to reflect his goodness and power. That's what it means to be made in his image. And so that means that every person, no matter um, who they are, that they're made in God's image, they have unique value and they have unique worth. And we also have a unique purpose in life, that God gives all of humanity a job. We looked at this a lot last semester in Loveology, but that we have a job in creation. That's to, to fill the world, right? To subdue it, to cultivate it into something beautiful for his glory. And so we've all therefore been created for a relationship with God where we daily experience him. We're made to delight in God. We're made to find our joy, our most deep sense of satisfaction and happiness and meaning in life out of our relationship with him. And living in the way he designed us. That's what the creation tells us. And we can spend a lot more talking about it, but that's the big picture. But what happens next? Does that last for a long time? No. Because the fall happens. And that's our second scene. Really only takes two chapters. And and things begin to fall apart in Genesis 3. That we know this, that Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness and decided that they could be better gods than the one true God. They let the serpent deceive them and and say, you know, well, did God really say that you couldn't eat from that tree? You know, does God really have your best interest at heart? That's the question at the heart of sin, really. And so Adam and Eve rebel. And because of that, sin and death enters the world. And because of that, we're all spiritually separated from God. We don't naturally know God anymore. And because of that, Adam and Eve get sent out of the garden. There's a, an angel with a flaming sword that guards the gates of Eden. That's a crazy picture. I'm not sure what all that means, but it's there. Um, and really, the story after Genesis, Genesis 3 all the way through about Genesis 11, is really just this story of humanity spiraling out of control. That things just go worse and worse and worse. And it shows really what happens when sin enters the world. You know, that humanity, we begin to kill each other, we begin to oppress each other, we reject God's design for the world, and that culminates with the flood, with Noah. And that shows how, uh, not the Noah here, but Noah in the Bible, all right? But that shows really, the flood itself shows the depth of sin, what sin can do to humanity, but also it shows God's punishment for sin, which is death. But also even in that, we see God's grace, and even a foretaste of the gospel that already happens in Genesis Um, early in Genesis, that God saves a remnant, Noah and his family. But then we move on to the Tower of Babel, not long after that. The Tower of Babel happens, people, they yet again reject God, and they reject his glory by building a tower, saying, hey, we're going to make a name for ourselves, we're going to become known and and seen as powerful and significant. And it's not that God's against cities, it's not that God's against skyscrapers, things like that, it's that God is against anyone trying to compete for his glory in that sense. And that's that's the big point of uh, Babel, is they're trying to make a name for themselves in contrast to God's glory. So what does God do? He confuses their language, he kind of spreads them out, and we see another kind of symptom of sin. That sin separates. It separates cultures and peoples. It confuses cultures and nations. There's not unity within diversity. It's separated and it's confusion. And all this stuff shows us how sin distorts humanity. That sin separates us from God. It it destroys relationships. And unless something changes, we'll be separated from God forever. Even today, if we die still separated from God, that separation will last forever in hell. And that's the reality of the fall and what it does to us. But then scene three is redemption. Because God, being the missional God that he is, is loving, 
He's compassionate, and he didn't want to leave us in our sin, so he pursued us. He took the initiative to pursue us and to bring us back to him. So you get back into the story. In Genesis 12, God approaches a man named Abram, tells him he's going to make his descendants a great nation, more numerous than the stars in the sky, and they're going to be a blessing to the world. That through all the world, um, Abraham's descendants will bless the world. And so through the family of Abraham, God brings about a people that we know as Israel. And through a famine, they end up in the land of Egypt. And uh, God pursues then a man named Moses, right? A guy who was a murderer, who was definitely not qualified for the job. But God pursues him and raises him up uh, to lead the people out of Egypt through the Exodus to the promised land. The land that God promised Abraham. And even in the Exodus we see God showing himself to be the only real and powerful God. You may not have thought about this before, but every one of the plagues that happens there in Egypt is in some way a power-up against another pagan god in Egypt, like the frog god, the health god, all these kind of different gods they have. Every plague was in some way like a power-up against these false gods, showing the people of Egypt, listen, like this god, Yahweh, he is the real god. He's the only true god, and he's the one who's going to lead these people out, and this is the god that you should worship. And even in the Passover we see that God shows himself as the one who can, who can punish sin and who can pardon sin by the blood of a sacrificial lamb, which is going to come up later on in the story of the Bible. And then we see Mount Sinai. We're kind of getting close to numbers where we're in for Sunday school, but in Mount Sinai, God tells the people this, and this is important, that the people of Israel are going to be a kingdom of priests and they're going to be a holy nation so that they can be a light to the Gentiles. That really the the New Testament principle is go and tell the gospel. The Old Testament principle is come and see. That the people of Israel were meant to be a light to the nations so that people would see Israel and see their belief in following of Yahweh and believe in him. So at Mount Sinai, God instructs the people. He helps them set up the tabernacle and the sacrificial system to show how he's holy and how a spotless sacrifice is necessary for sin to be taken away from people. And then God leads the people of Israel through the wilderness. It takes way more than two weeks like it should. It takes 40 years because of their stubbornness. But he gets them to the land that he promised to Abraham. But once they're in the land... It falls apart again. The people begin to rebel. Or they start looking around to other nations and be like, hey, like, we really want what those nations have. Like, we want to marry with those people. We want to kind of inherit some of the stuff they have. We want to live the way that they do. You know, we don't worship their gods. We want to worship their idols, things like that. But even in their stubbornness, God does something amazing. He, he still is patient with them. He doesn't destroy them completely. But he raises up people called judges. Judges who lead the people and correct them. But then the people want a king. They're like, hey, these nations around us, they they have a king. We really want a king. We want to be like the other nations. God, give us a king. So God, yet again, is patient with them and graciously allows them uh, a king. And the nation grows into a kingdom. And it seems like maybe they're finally going to become this light to the nations they're supposed to be. But then it falls apart because most of the kings, like, suck. They're the worst kings. They're terrible. And they commit atrocious things. And over and over, the, the kings get worse and worse. They eventually lead the nation to be split in a civil war. The, the nation gets uh, taken over by other nations to where eventually the people of Israel get exiled to other nations around Israel. And there's not even many people that live in Israel. Many of their more influential people end up living in places like Babylon, places like Persia. We get books like Daniel. We get books like Esther during the exile. And it seems during that time that God's plan has failed. But even during that time, during their rebellion, you know, even while they're in exile, God begins to raise up people called prophets. People that are speaking for God, that God communicates through them. 
And he tells the people of Israel many things. The prophets have tons of stuff in there. But he tells them things like, God's not done pursuing them even in their rebellion. He's going to punish them for their sin, but he's not done pursuing them. And he's going to do even greater things than they could ever imagine. That he has purposes in this. And the prophets foretell of a day when God's not just going to give people laws to obey, but he's going to write the law on their hearts. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. The prophets speak of a day when God's going to come and save his people, not just from foreign oppression, but from their sin. And he's going to change them. And so eventually people get, begin to return back to Israel. You have Nehemiah, you have Ezra. They return, they begin to rebuild. Hope starts to flicker, but then guess what? 400 years of silence. God just stops speaking. 400 years, there's nothing. And that's the end of the Old Testament. But then the New Testament comes a few hundred years later after silence from God and Jesus shows up and says this in the beginning of Mark. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the kingdom of God becomes the central theme of Jesus' ministry. So what is it? What's the kingdom of God? Well, it's God's loving rule and reign in the lives of his people. It's God beginning to pursue people and bring them back into a right relationship with him. The kingdom is God bringing into fulfillment what he'd been working for for thousands of years, restoring humanity back to himself. So Jesus shows the kingdom through his miracles, through raising people from the dead, through his healings, through powerful teachings. He begins to illustrate what the kingdom of God looks like. And in all of that, we know that Jesus was not just a prophet, not just a great teacher, not, great, not just a great miracle worker, but that he was indeed God in human form. He was the God of the universe come to save us from our sins, to live a perfect life, to die in our place for the death we deserved. And he came as a fulfillment of all that God had been doing for thousands of years. And so Jesus himself really is the ultimate picture of the missional God, that God sends Jesus to us. He comes to us to do what we can't do. He comes, he's crucified on a cross for our sins to, to take away our sin. He's raised from the dead to demonstrate God's power over sin. And Christ pays our debt for us so we can be brought back into a right relationship with God if we just repent and believe in him, which we'll unpack more next week. we talk about what is the gospel message. So that's the three scenes, but last we, got, we can't leave off the restoration. So think about this last scene of the restoration. Because after Christ's resurrection, he gave his disciples a mission. Like he, just, he didn't just you know, star trek into heaven and say, all right, I'll see you later. Like he gave them a mission. He said, I want you to go and tell everyone the good news of salvation. And that's how the church is born. The church isn't born you know, just for some organization to exist. God didn't create a mission for the church. He gave, you know, the, sorry, he uh, didn't create a mission for the church. He created the church for the mission. He didn't, just, he didn't just create a mission for the church. He created the church for a mission. And that's the foundational principle of why the church exists. And not long after Christ's ascension, God sent the Holy Spirit in Acts to empower the church and to go tell the world the gospel. And it's fascinating because if you go like read the book of Acts, especially early on, you'll see a lot of times over and over again the apostles speaking and preaching, and they don't really reference the words of Jesus a lot. They really, they reference the Old Testament a bunch. You got them referencing books like Joel and books like um, Malachi and things like that, kind of random books that we don't read a lot in our Bible reading plans. But we see them referencing these things all, um, all the time. And what they're doing is this, is they're connecting the dots of what God has been doing all throughout history. It's almost like a light bulb went on in their minds. They begin to see, oh, all these things that God has been talking about through the prophets and throughout history, Jesus was the fulfillment of that. And he is the fulfillment of God's mission. And so really us going out to be a witness is the, our partnership in what God has been doing all along. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's really amazing thing because really a lot of historians, even non-Christian historians, will say that the church, like early Christianity, was shot into culture like a cannon. 
that really Judaism was kind of this small, kind of encapsulated thing for a long time, uh, especially in that time before the early church. But once the Christianity like began, it just exploded. And the reason it exploded was because of the, the Holy Spirit, because it's God, but also because the church, they, they got it. They began to connect the dots of the story. And they saw that Jesus um, was commissioning them not just to go share information, not just to go share like, you know, a, a message, uh, but to be a partner with God in the transformation and the restoration of all things. That they were partnering with God in that way. And that perspective, empowered by the Spirit, changed everything. It made the church unstoppable. That believers went and spread the news of Christ everywhere they went, many times being scattered even farther by oppression or by persecution. And really, it's, it's crazy if you look at the Bible and look at church history. Because you see that, really, it was anonymous Christians that took the gospel to places like Judea and Samaria. You know, it was an unidentified follower of Jesus who took the gospel to Asia as well. We see the 12 uh, disciples, the apostles, even splitting up the world into different places to go to share the gospel. You know, like India. Like, if you go to India, like, St. Thomas stuff is everywhere because Thomas was the apostle who went to India to share the gospel with them. That we see they were shot out all over the world. But many of these people aren't even written in our Bibles. They're people we don't even know. Like, they were just compelled by the mission, and they were compelled and sent out in the power of Christ. Now, I love David Platt's quote about this. He said it this way. He said, the gospel spreads, from the book of Acts we see this, the gospel spreads by ordinary people empowered by, the, empowered by an extraordinary presence while proclaiming the gospel everywhere they go. And that's the beauty of where we're at today, that we're ordinary people empowered by an extraordinary presence who proclaim the gospel everywhere we go. Now, until Christ returns, we're living in the last days before Christ returns where we're commissioned to go and to share the gospel and to make disciples. And one day Christ will return again to make all things new, to finish what he started, to defeat sin and death, and begin the new creation where we'll live forever with him like a new garden of Eden, but, but even better. And that's the story of the Bible. That's it. That's, that's the whole thing right there in like however many minutes that took me to do it, okay? Um, and that's it. That's the big picture, and that's the story that we're invited into and so from you, that may even be helpful when you think about when you're reading the Bible, where you're at in the story. It's been really helpful for me. But we, as we begin to close tonight, I want to think about this one third thing, and we'll start to wrap up, is your story in light of God's story. Your story in light of God's story. Because like I said earlier, we're all meant to find our story within the story of God. If you're looking for meaning and purpose in life, this is it. Like it's to be reconciled to God in Christ, and then to go tell everyone you know, everyone you can, about what Christ has done for you. That's the mission of your life, is to join God in his mission in the renewal of all things. Every other mission, every other cause, no matter how good it is, is eventually going to end, and they all really need to find their root if they're going to matter eternally in the mission of God, because that's all that impacts eternity. So Jesus invites us to, um, out of our small stories and our things that maybe we feel comfortable in, and he invites us into his greater story, his big picture story. Because if his story is true, it's got to change the way that we view everything. If we're living in this greater story, it's going to change the way we view ourselves, our identity. It's going to change what we want out of life, what our ultimate goals are. It's going to change the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we prioritize things. It's going to change everything. And so for you tonight, do the goals, do the purposes, do the values of your life, do they line up with the big picture story of God working to reconcile all things to himself and you being called and sent out to do that? So I want us to consider one thing as we begin to close, is consider the call of the disciples. Like if you consider places like Luke 5, where Jesus calls Peter. It's a really cool story. When Jesus first calls Peter to be his disciple, 
He meets Peter while he's still a fisherman. You know, many of the disciples were fishermen by trade before. Um, and Peter and his co-workers at that time, they had spent all night the night before uh, trying to fish. And it's really funny that the disciples were fishermen because like, they were terrible fishermen. Like all in the Bible, they're never catching anything. So it's like maybe it's good that you became apostles and disciples. Like you weren't really doing so well in the fishing business before. Maybe Jesus like upgraded you in your career because you weren't quite cutting it in fishing. Okay, um, But they spent all night before you know, trying to catch fish, hadn't caught anything. Um, and Jesus, he, he, he's speaking on the boat. But while they're on the boat, he says, Peter... How about we go out one more time, get your nets, let's, let's fish one more time, see what happens. And Peter's like, Jesus, like, we just did this last night, I caught nothing, like, I feel really terrible about my career choice right now, so don't, don't make me go do this again. Okay? He's like, no, just, just, let's do it. So Peter obeys, he submits, and they go out and they cast the nets one more time. And what happens? They begin catching so many fish that like, literally their nets are over, like breaking. They call one more boat over. The other boat starts to help them. They fill both boats up with fish, and their, their boats are starting to sink because of how many fish they have. That's a lot of fish. That's a lot of fish sandwiches from, like, you know, Captain D's or whatever. So they, like, they, these boats are weighed down. I hate Captain D's, by the way. The place is gross, okay? I'm um, just saying. I, I know. I, in my brain, I brought it up to bash it, apparently. So anyway, lots of fish sandwiches. But Peter, he gets amazed. He's like, oh my gosh, like, what, what is happening? He realizes the miracle. Who knows how much, of he, how much of the picture he got, but he begins to realize that Jesus is something special. He may be the Messiah. And so Peter falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, hey, God, Jesus, I'm, un, I'm unworthy. Like, please, you know, like, get away from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. But Jesus gets Peter up. He tells him this. He says, from now on, you're not going to be a fisherman of a fish. You're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to be a fisher of men. And then Peter immediately leaves it all and goes to follow Jesus. And that's kind of a fun story we've heard before, but like, what is the idea there? I think one thing we can pull from that is Jesus calls us um, beyond what we think our lives could possibly be. That for Peter and for many of those guys, the trajectory of their life was to be a fisherman. You know, maybe they weren't very good at it, but maybe they get better, you know, but the the path of life, the story they were writing for their life is I'm going to be a fisherman. I'm going to do my best in that. And that was kind of the horizon of possibility they had for their life. But Jesus comes in and he expands that horizon. He invites them to so much more. He meets them and he meets us in our normalcy. He meets us in our mundane. And just like those nets, he fills it. And he invites us to a greater vision for our life. Not that we all have to give it up and be missionaries or pastors or whatever. But he comes and he speaks a greater story into what he's calling us into. He gives us a greater vision. But consider one more part of that story of Peter in the end of the Gospels. In John 21. That after everything's happened with Jesus, he's been crucified, he's been betrayed, he's been crucified, he's resurrected, but Peter hasn't spent much time with him apparently. Peter, in the midst of disappointment and failure, because we know he denied Christ three times, Peter kind of gives up the ministry. And we see in John 21, what Peter does after everything's kind of fallen apart, is he goes back to fishing. And we find him in John 21, fishing again. And he's not doing a very good job at it again there. But um, the thing is, Peter, he went back to what he knew after he was jaded and cynical and burnt in this mission. He went back to what was easy, and he went back to living in this smaller story. And I think for us, that can be very true. A lot of you guys know everything I've been talking about tonight. Like, you're kind of just, yeah, I get the mission of God. I get the the, the big picture of the Bible. I get all that. I've been in Sunday school since I was, like, you know, not even born yet. Like, I, I get it, you know. I understand this stuff. But for many of us, it's easy to get cynical, easy to kind of get jaded, to kind of just get used to this. It's easy to kind of just say, you know what, like, yeah, I get it, but it's just way easier for me to live this comfortable life or, or live for just today or live, you know, for just 
ease, you know, just to kind of appease the people around me, to appease my own plan for a life, and to settle in our life. And that's kind of what Peter did. He went back to what is easy, and, and he settled in that way. But I love the way this story happens, because Jesus comes to Peter after he's been fishing all night. He ain't caught anything again, right? Um, and, and he cooks some breakfast for him. He fries up some fish or whatever. And Jesus asks him, he says, Peter, he says, do you love me more than these? And, you know, many people have different opinions on, like, what Jesus meant by these. Some people think he's talking about other disciples. Peter, Peter's competitive, so Jesus is like, well, are you better at loving me than these other guys? Like, you know, I'm going to kind of rile you up, you know, to, to love me again or follow me again. But I think one option to think about and not with these is it's not the other disciples, but what if he's talking about the fish? Like, they're literally eating fish, they're frying fish. And Jesus is like, Peter, like, do you love me more than fish? You love me more than fishing? You love me more than what's easy? And what's comfortable? And Jesus uh, and Peter responds saying yes. And after a few more times of asking that question, Jesus says to Peter, all right, then, then feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And basically in that, Jesus invites Peter back into the mission. Back into the mission God has for him. And not just to settle for what's easy, for what's safe, and, what, and what's comfortable. And so for some of you guys tonight, I want, you know, God may be asking you, you know, do you love me more than the plans you have for your life? Do you love me more than the script that would be easy to run, easy to live out? Do you love me more than the American dream, than the nine to five, than you know, what would be easy to plan out? Like, do you love me more than that? Not that God is calling all of us to give up those things, but he may be. But even within that, God's calling us to live for something a lot more than just the American dream, just comfort, success. You know, God's calling us to live for the kingdom of God, this big picture he's inviting us into, to prioritize our life, and everything about us to be really more the kingdom of God than our own little kingdoms. He's going us to prioritize our life by his story and to live on mission and join him in mission in that way. Because living on mission is hard. Many times you want to go back. I mean, in ministry over the years, there's been many times I'm like, man, I'll just be an engineer again. Like, I could just go to work and do my job and go home and not have to, you know, deal with some of the things I have to deal with and, you know, all that. And, People won't say, you're ever going to be a real pastor because you're a college pastor, you know, whatever. And uh, <laughs> just kidding. People do say that, though. You know, but um, that's the thing, like, but I love my job, and I would not want to do anything else. I love college ministry. Um, but there's times it's easy to want to, want to yeah, fall back on what's easy and what's comfortable. And, and that may not be a job thing for you, but many times in the future, it may be easy for you to be like, you know what, it's easier for me to just show up, clock in, clock out, not really engage in relationships and conversations, and just be done. That's not what we're called to. That's not what it means to live on, live on mission with God. So tonight, as we close, I want you to consider what story are you living for? How are you living out that story in your own life? And is maybe God calling you tonight into a greater story? And how many things need to change because of that? I gave you three questions to discuss. So I want to pray for us. And we'll give you guys a little bit of time to chat. And then we'll, uh, we'll send you out from there. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your pursuit of us that you are the missional God who has pursued us in Christ. That there's nothing we did, nothing that, no way we would deserve your love and your pursuit of us. But yet in your grace and your love and just really in who you are, you've pursued us in Christ and brought us back to yourself. And Lord, you desire us, your church, your people, to be known by mission. Not just have that be a, a part of what we do, a part of our lives, but really be the primary objective, the, uh, the foundation of our life is a mission, is to be sent by you into the places you already place us, 
and maybe to be sent by you to places all over the world uh, to maybe where the gospel's never even been heard of so that people can hear and believe. But I pray tonight for these students that you would help them to maybe for the first time ever look at their life and, and present open-handed to you whatever you want to do, to write a blank check, to say, God, I'm tired of writing my own story. I'm tired of just living into what's easy and safe and kind of expected of me. But tonight I want to open-handed and ask you, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Where are you sending me? Uh, what is my mission and my personal application of your mission look like in life? Pray that you guide our discussion tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.